Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by fellow Virginian Chris Riley, the founder and owner of Riley Ridecrafters. Chris shares his fishing journey, his thoughts on rod design, and the story behind his rod company. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And one more quick announcement. Our friend Blaine Chocolate has launched a new round of online tying classes for April. He'll be teaching folks how to tie the changer crawl and his famous cicada pattern. The classes will be held live on April 10th, and all the details are in the show notes. Space is limited, so don't delay. Now, on to our interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks, Marvin. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, wow. So my earliest memory uh, would have to be fishing with my father. Um, I believe it was Jeanette's Pier down in Nags Head. And there was, it was one of those just amazing runs of spot and croaker. And I, I think maybe I was four. And, you know, we were out there half the night just catching them two at a time. And it, it was just an absolute blast. It, it was um, a great experience. And it, it was fun to be out there with all the others. You saw, you know, sort of the camaraderie that was happening. and Everybody was catching fish and everybody was happy. And it, it was a good experience. It was a great experience. Yeah, that's really neat. When did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? Um, it would have been somewhere around the age of 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, never really had any inclination, you know, no tendencies to that. Um, but I was a freshman in high school, so I must have been 13. I was a freshman in high school and, um, uh, there was this guy in my home room that liked to hunt and fish just like I did. And, and so we sort of became fast friends. And then I started hunting and fishing with him and his father. My father was much, much older. He was 40 when I was born and, and pretty beat up from World War II. Um, so, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of that, particularly later. Uh, so, so I was always out with my friend Tracy and his dad, and his dad was actually the one that introduced me to fly fishing, um, and and taught me, you know, from that point forward. Really, um, really, really neat to have somebody like that sort of take you under their wing and and uh, you know mentor you and, and sort of treat you like you know one of his own. Yeah, and that was Chuck Kraft, right? That was Chuck. Yeah, I mean that's not that's not just any mentor to take you under uh, his wing either. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is I didn't necessarily realize that until several years later. And my first wife and I had moved out to Flavana County and uh, started going to a church out there. 
And every Sunday morning, I ended up out on the front steps of the church talking to this old gentleman about hunting and fishing. And I, I, I'm horrible with names. And I was introduced to him, and I don't even think I heard the name because I would have remembered. Um, and then finally, and you know how that goes, you know, after you talk two times and you're embarrassed to ask, you know, by the way, what's your name? Um, but I found a way to do it sort of slyly, and it was Bob Gooch, who was one of the old Virginia Outdoor writers. And, and uh, we got to be good friends. And Bob and his wife, Ginny, invited my wife and I to their house, which was just down the road from ours, uh, for dinner one night. And he asked me about, you know, so when and where and how did you learn to fly fish? And I said, well, you know, Chuck Kraft taught me. And, and I knew Chuck, you know, some people knew him. So I figured, you know, Bob would know that name. And he was like, my Lord, son, do you realize... <laughs> <laughs> you realize the advantage you've had, and uh, and and I started, I started really realizing how fortunate I was, and continued to be. Thank goodness. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because I mean, I can remember growing up in Central Virginia. I mean, not very many people fly fished at all. No, no, no. You know, it was it was something that. Um, you know, it was, it was something, at least I grew up with the impression that it was something that you did out West. You know, it was, uh, it was a Montana thing or Colorado or Wyoming thing. You know, you just didn't really hear about it. And I don't think until that point I knew anybody else that fly fished. Yeah. I mean, I, I can certainly say I didn't growing up. Um, you know, my first experience, uh, we had family friends that had a place in Rockbridge or Botetourt County. And I can remember going in their shed one day and there was an, just an ancient fly rod, uh, up on the wall with a fly. And I was like, can I go play with this? And I went and played with it and caught some trout. Um, but that was, you know, I was a gear worm dunking guy as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's, that's how Chuck taught Tracy and I to trout fish originally, you know, we'd go sane minnows out of the creek and, you know, drift dace minnows in the trout streams. Um, and that's how we caught trout. And then, you know, later we started using Joe's flies and things like that. And then finally graduated to a fly rod. But yeah, that, that was, it just wasn't that big of a thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. It too, and you know, in addition to Chuck, who are some of the other folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey, Chris? Um, well, certainly Bob Gooch uh, was a mentor in so many ways, uh, fly fishing, hunting, um, and life in general. Um, there's also a, an older gentleman that I got to know quite by accident. Um, his name was George Engelhart, and how I got to know him was uh, a good friend of mine that I used to bird hunt with. He put a deposit down on a puppy, and I think it was unbeknownst to his wife. And when she found out, she was like, absolutely not. We're not having another puppy. We've got three dogs in the house. So he ended up giving me his spot in the litter, but I actually had to interview uh, to be able to accept that 
spot. And it, and it was interviewing with George that was the breeder. And, and George really isn't a breeder or wasn't a breeder. He was he would follow the field trial circuits and, you know, take copious notes. And, you know, once every three or four years, he'd have a litter with one of his females and whichever male caught his attention. Um, so we sort of got connected through bird hunting and English setters. And then it turned out that George, being the old New England gentleman that he was, was a big-time fly fisher also. So those... Those guys, um, you know, in my early years, and and then later, it was, um, you know, once I sort of got into the industry, um, Stu, Stu Apt, um, Stu took me under his wing. He's treated me like a son the day I met him. Um, uh, certainly had some influence from Flip Pallet. Um had some good influence from Gary Loomis. So, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate. I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, you haven't done too badly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's interesting, too. I, you know, I, I knew that you bird hunted, uh, and you were talking about it just a few minutes ago. But, you know, one of the great things kind of about kind of where we're from is, you know, Central Virginia is really, if you're a sportsman, it's a great place to be. You know, how did growing up in that part of the world influence your sporting life? Oh, wow. You know, it it could have gone so much differently because my parents were both New Yorkers um, from the city. Um, And they, they lived in New Jersey when they started having kids, but it was Paramus, New Jersey. So, you know, just the other side of the river. Um, and they moved down to Charlottesville when I think it was two years before I was born. It's when they moved down. Uh, and one of the reasons they moved down here was because my mother's sister, her youngest sister, lived here. And um, she was married to this fella that he grew up on a farm. He was one of I don't know, seven, eight, nine boys. Um, it was a Cason family. And, you know, these were, these were guys, their, their family was part Mattapanai and they hunted and fished and gardened and, you know, were into all the natural crafts and, and things. And, and that, you know, as much as anything sort of got my interest in just being outdoors and so, you know, in living where we live, gosh, you're right. I mean, there's just so much opportunity. You know, you can go from where I live, you can go an hour, hour and a half in one direction and bring a fly rod and a 20 gauge and grouse hunt and trout fish all on the same, you know, chunk of property. Or you could go two, two and a half hours in the other direction and go surf. You know, and, and it's sort of the sky's the limit. Just pick what you want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. I think until I went to Montana, I always said that if I won the lottery, I'd buy a big horse farm in Albemarle County. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that actually was a piece of advice that uh, 
that Bob Gooch gave me because I remember sitting at dinner with, with him and Jenny one night and, and I was 27, 26. And he said, so, so son, have you been to Montana yet? And I said, well, no, sir. You know, that, that's a dream. I'd really like to get out there, but, but I haven't been to Montana yet. And he said, go before you're 30 because you're not going to want to spend any more time in Virginia. <laughs> and this is from this is from an old Virginian, you know. His family's been here since the Mayflower, and and you know he he was right in a lot of ways. But you know, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling, and either through work or for pleasure. And yeah, I still always want to come back to Virginia. You know, as good as as good as it can be in other places, Virginia's it. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, growing up in Lynchburg, you know, like so many of the people that I went to high school with, all we wanted to do was escape. And now so many of us, all we are trying to do is figure out how to get back. Exactly. You know, when I grew up, it was like, I'm getting out of Charlottesville. I'm not going to spend another minute in Charlottesville. And, you know, when I was working in the early part of my career, I would spend, you know, three to four weeks out on the road, be home for a week and then go do it again. And all these places that I loved being Minneapolis and, and central Minnesota was sort of one of my first addictions. And I really wanted to move out there. But then I realized every time I flew home and you're looking out the window and you start seeing the Appalachians pop up, you felt like you were home. And I just couldn't escape that feeling. You know, got to be in the mountains. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of funny, you know, they're, they're beach people and mountain people. And I know I'm definitely a mountain person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I know you have a technical background, but, you know, what attracted you, Chris, to rod design and manufacturing? Um, it, it, honestly, it was one of the furthest things from my mind. Um, it's it's interesting. One of one of the last big assignments that I had in sort of the corporate world. So I went to work for a little company called Nitec that you know was the owner and twelve engineers when I went to work for them. They were up in Northern Virginia. They had just moved out of the owner's garage, and they had a real hot technology, um, and it was a very unique radar um, whose application was perfect for basically finding IEDs and landmines. And, you know, they, they brought me on board because they had a project going on that uh, was in five or six years. It was working with BAE systems and in five or six years, it was going to lead into production. And, and I had a, a strong technical background, but also had been in manufacturing most of my life. And, you know, the owner thought, okay, well, this is like the perfect fit, you know, so we'll, we'll hire this guy. He'll manage this program. And when it does go into production, we'll have him start production. Well, sort of long story short, we parted ways with BAE systems, uh, 
and had an opportunity to send our equipment over to Afghanistan for an operational evaluation. And it was supposed to be there, I think, two months. It ended up being six months. And the generals basically didn't want to have the equipment leave and come back to the States. And their orders were, we want them now and we want them by the hundred. So I was immediately thrown into the situation where I need to come back down to Charlottesville and, you know, start up a manufacturing organization. And um, that's what I did. I started with five people. And ultimately, and it was a super sharp curve. Uh, I think it was three years later. I had 250-something employees, and we were doing just shy of $250 million of manufacturing revenue. Wow. And gener- generating these systems, and they would go directly from my factory onto flatbed trucks to Dover, onto a C4, and over to Kandahar. Um, and, you know, it was a it was a great project, uh, but it really sort of burned me out. And along the way, the owner, this guy named Fred Quadfelter, he's a great guy, and he's a fly fisherman and bird hunter also. Uh, Fred knew that I liked the smallmouth fish and that I liked the fly fish, and he was big on just doing little surprise things for folks. And he gave me a seven-weight fly rod I won't say who made it, but it was a beautiful rod, absolutely gorgeous, Um, and it was an expensive rod, but I could not stand fishing with this thing. I mean, it it was work, and, you know, it, it, it made me question my skills initially, and, you know, it got down to, okay, I can handle the rod, but it's just not fun. And I started thinking about, you know, where the industry had headed. And it it sort of took this turn for making rods faster and faster and faster and lighter and lighter and lighter. And, you know, I understood how they were doing that with the materials. And I just said, eh, this isn't going to go well, ultimately. I don't know how long it'll take. But I don't think it's going to go well. We're going to end up with a lot of breakage. And, you know, quite honestly, is that really what people want? Because when I started talking to folks, they were looking for rods like I wanted, you know. And, and, And to me, it was the rods that I grew up and learned to fish with, you know, which meant uh, a very progressive taper. Um, a softer, smoother action. Um, I could easily feel the the rod load. Um, you know, it was it was accurate and it was pleasurable. You could just instinctively cast and didn't have to always be thinking about your timing and how that changed as your line went out because you couldn't feel the rod load. So when NITEC took a turn um, south, and, and that all came about because of the drawdown of troops in Afghanistan. 
when all of a sudden this one product this this company was built on was no longer in demand. Um, I left and just thought, okay, well, what's my next project going to be? And I thought more about my experience with that fly rod and the things that it made me think about. And I said, we can do this. We can do this. And, And we'll build the kinds of rods that we like to fish, that I like to fish. And it turns out a lot of other people like that type of rod as well. So that that was sort of the genesis. That's how we that's how we started. Sure, and I mean I I understand the attributes, and you know certainly, and it's interesting too because you know I find that people that have been around the sport longer and you know really could fish any stick they want to almost always are migrating back to a, a medium you know, to a medium fast action rod with a little bit more feel. Right. Right. And, and, you know, in my opinion, you know, if there's one designer that really nailed it and, and I just hold an extremely high regard and that was Tom Morgan. And these are the kinds of rods that Tom would design. You know, they were, they were just really, really uh, soulful rods and a pleasure to fish. Yeah, and so how do you kind of take, you know, what I guess the end consumer feels and likes and how does that kind of show up as a design philosophy and how do you kind of, you know, go from, you know, what the consumer wants and what does that mean from a design philosophy perspective? Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And and I don't think really our design philosophies have changed that much with our customer interaction. If anything, it's just sort of reemphasizing that, you know, this, this really seems to be what this group of customers really wants. The challenge has been you know, as a small company and, and bootstrapping it out of, you know, your own funds it is overcoming all the marketing hype, um, you know, and, and, and really trying to figure out how to get down to not what the customer thinks he wants based on a, a magazine ad or based on some hype on social media, but, you know, when they actually get a rod in their hands, what do they really want? You know, what really feels good for them? What really lets them enjoy their fishing and not find it frustrating? And and that's been the challenge. Um, and and I, that will continue to be the challenge. And we, we address that in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, we started doing a program with our guides that fish our rods and, you know, we'll give them a, a, a code and a bunch of courtesy cards. And, you know, when their clients fish our rods and they love them, which they usually do, um, you know, they can just hand them one of those cards at the end of the trip and say, hey, listen, you know, if you're, if you're interested, if you want to pick up one of these, you know, go to this website, use this code, and um, and you can get ten percent off your rod. 
and the guide gets a little bit of a commission, you know, for that as well. Uh, because that's the way our rods are sold. It's by putting them in people's hands and letting them feel the difference. Sure. And I guess, you know, to maybe uh, if we walk through sort of like the back cast and the forward cast and kind of a comparison with, you know, I guess what's kind of become kind of the norm, which is, you know, very fast or ultra fast rods, kind of let folks know that haven't had a chance to, uh, to cast one of your rods, kind of what it feels like and what the difference is. Yeah. So the, the difference that you'll feel really from the start is that there's much more flex in the rod. Um, you know, these aren't, these generally are not tip flex rods, you know, where only the top 18 inches of the rod has much of any flex into it. Um, you know, this is a, these are progressive tapers. I have some parabolics as well, but but generally, we're talking about progressive tapers. You'll you'll see them flex well down into their midsection, and that's by design. I think sometimes people think that means the rod's you know undersized or it's weak, but it's actually letting the rod do what it's intended to do, which is to store energy and then transfer it to the line. So when you first pick up your line you'll see particularly if if the line's in the water and you've got some water loading going on you'll see a pretty steep arc in that rod but it's going to flex back you know it's going to counteract that that force and it will launch your line you know back into a great back cast and as it starts to come taut you'll feel the tip of the rod starting to load and bend back under that pressure. And, you know, it's very easy to get tuned up to where, you know, you can feel that loading build, 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 and it just starts to slack. And, you know, a split second later, you take your forward cast and the same thing happens in reverse. Yeah, and then you get the recovery, which is going to be a lot smoother because the the there's so much more flex in the rod. So much more flex in the rod. And then one of the real tricks is to be sure, you know, you've you got to counteract that flex, particularly in the tip, um, with a little bit of design to ensure that you get good dampening of the tip. You know, it doesn't just sort of bounce back and forth like a loose spring. Um, you know, because that certainly is going to, first of all, it consumes energy, so it's going to take some distance out of your cast, but it's also going to impact the accuracy of your cast. Yeah, you'll have a bunch of little wavies in the bottom leg of your uh, of your loop. Yep, and and I'll see guys that are very experienced casters, but they're used to some of these super fast rods, and you'll see them cast a couple of times and you'll see those wavies and, you know, they'll say, Oh, you've got really bad tip dampening. And the answer is no, you're really overpowering the rod. Yeah. I was going to say, you probably also see those guys throw a lot of tailing loops too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's just a much more instinctive way of casting and, 
for me, you know, casting is just a means to an end. You know, it's, it's necessary to get a fly to a fish. And the whole point of being there is to enjoy your environment and hopefully catch a few fish. It's not to cast. Yeah, it's funny. It's, uh, it's interesting. Cause I've, you know, it's, um, you know, it really is a tool, right? And sometimes we lose sight of that. Right, right. And so I'll tell people, you know, I'm actually agnostic. There are times where I'm just going to grab my spinning rod and my casting rod because, you know, well, particularly a spinning rod, if it's a really windy day and I still want to fish because it's the only day I'm going to be able to get out, I'm not necessarily going to mess around with the fly rod that much. You know, I may bring it, but I'm going to bring a spinning rod too. I guarantee it. <laughs> and it's interesting that a lot of people um, that I grew up respecting in the sport were very much the same way. Um, certainly Chuck was that way. And when you talk to Stu App, he's like, Chris, it's a tool. And sometimes it's a great tool. And sometimes it's just the wrong tool for the job. You go to your spinning rod, you go to your cast. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I always like when I talk to gear guys, I always tell them that I think one place that, you know, because obviously like musky fishing is a place where fishing for them on the fly is a lot of work. Um, yep. But but also I think, you know, one place where I think um, fly rides really excel are basically like fishing lily pads for largemouth bass. I think it's a better tool. I do too. Right. I do too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And so, you know, it's kind of, I always think of, uh, when I think of your rides, I sort of... Um, I sort of think of nostalgia, but with all the modern uh, engineering and materials. And and that's the idea. Um, you know, that, that is the idea. When I talk to people about our rods, you know, we'll talk about accuracy. We'll talk about feel. Um, we'll talk about, you know, the getting to the point where you're able to just focus on where you are and you're fishing and not your casting, which has sort of always been my objective for people. Um, but, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, and it, it's for guys that are, you know, they're, they're listening to all the ads and they're seeing all this information and they're not quite sure what to make of it, but they'll say, yeah, but you know, your rod weighs, you know, three eighths of an ounce more than this other one and that's absolutely true and they always will because i do use um, particularly at the core um, i do use older lower modulus material um, and i roll thicker walls to our blanks and that really has to do with making sure that we have as little breakage as possible. You know, thin walls, high modulus, asking for trouble, there's going to be breakage. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine a, uh, a critter might or a crawl dad whacking a rod tip is a bad thing. (laughs) It's not good (laughs) for any rod. (laughs) Um, 
So, so it's interesting. I know you, you touched on this a little bit earlier about, you know, one of the challenges about being a smaller rod manufacturer is we sort of have this, uh, you know, we've not just in fly fishing, I mean, pretty much in everything now, you know, you know, if it's two years old, it's really old. Right. Right. And, you know, how did you overcome that challenge and what other challenges did you, did you face as you kind of got into the rod manufacturing business? Well, you know, the challenge, the challenges are, are certainly, um, it, it's certainly in getting the customer's attention. And, you know, we, we quickly realized that we weren't going to do that by advertising and, and we do some, but you know, we don't have much of an advertising budget. We, we do it by getting them in people's hands. You know, the other issues are, um, material costs, you know, something, something as basic as that, you know, I'm not producing 20,000 rods a year. So I'm not getting the kind of pricing that some of those guys get. And that means that I don't have the kinds of margins that those guys get. So then we have to start talking about, you know, what, what the warranty issues are, you know, how do you administer warranty? And I take a different approach to that um, than most of the rest of the industry has and that takes a little bit of explanation and a little bit of customer education. But once you explain it, it's like, yeah, boy, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, why, why am I doing that? Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, a lot of companies, their pricing model is such that there's so much margin in their rods. It's so easy to offer a no fault, you know, lifetime warranty and and when you sit down and you do the math on that it doesn't it doesn't work uh unless you're charging you know a two or three or four hundred percent markup on this rod and there's so many guys that are like well this is great you know so i can just send it in no matter what happened i slam the car door on it they're going to send me a new rod and I'm like, mm, wow, did you stop to wonder how they can afford to do that? <laughs> I thought they were just nice people, Chris. <laughs> well, I think that's sometimes what people think. But, you know, again, sit down and do the math. And, I, and I'm saying, you know what, I'm not going to charge you that because, you know, some of these prices are exorbitant. I'm not going to charge you that and basically make you pay for everybody else mistreating their gear. You know, if there's a if there's a real defect in workmanship or material, no question, absolutely, we'll make that right without without question. If you slam the car door on it and you tell me, hey Chris, I'm sorry, but I slammed the car door on it. Generally, I'm going to repair it for what a lot of companies charge for their warranty administration. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's not really making money on it. It's sort of covering my cost, but, you know, warranty for me was never intended to be a profit center. Yeah. It, and, you know, I, obviously those are some of the challenges, but also being smaller has its benefits. I'm sure you're a lot nimbler than a large organization. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about that quite a bit, um, 
you know, I've got guys all the time. And, and again, we've got a strong guide network and a lot of loyalty with those guides. And, you know, the, the thing is, they'll come up with an idea or, you know, uh, you know, I think this would be really great, but it's kind of a limited application. And, you know, if it makes sense, it's, yeah, okay, let's try it. You know, we can build six of those. We can roll six of those blanks. We can build six of those rods. We can we can see, you know, and I, and I can do it in you know five, six, seven weeks, as opposed to well, we got to plan a whole production run, and you know you're going to have to buy five hundred of them to make this work, and it'll take I don't know nine to ten months. So you know my the the mantra that I've been sort of adopting from Outback is, you know, no rules, just right. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, you know, you're not in this kind of annual or biannual um, product cycle and you, you have five series that have, you know, been pretty stable since you launched the company. And I was yep. wondering if you could kind of, you know, walk folks through them and I'm happy to tick them off and have you talk about them or however you want to skin that cat. Yeah. No, if you want to, Tick them off. If you want to tee them up for me, I'll. Yeah, sure. So you know, you've got uh, you've got the Chuck Craft Signature Series, right? Right, right. And and that all came about because I was at a point in my life where I was, you know, really, really counting my blessings. And I thought, my gosh, this man has done so much for me and so much for the industry, but he kept such a low profile and never really got all the accolades. I want to do something with him for him. And, you know, I approached Chuck with the idea, you know, let's, let's do a series of rods and, you know, let's, let's focus it on small mouth and, um, and see where that goes. And maybe we'll expand it a little bit. And, uh, you know, so he and I sat down and talked, okay, so what for you makes a great rod? And he talked about a rod that was made many, many, many years ago when he was a guide and he was a pro staffer for this rod company. It's a great rod company. They're still around. And they made this series of rod that um, was a staple in his boat. And he said, you know, I'd have clients that would show up with these $1,000 rods they, they couldn't handle and, you know, they couldn't cast it and they'd get frustrated and, you know, they wouldn't want to switch and use my rod. He said, so I learned to just sort of back off until lunchtime and then just after the lunch break say, hey, why don't you fish this rod for a while? And he put the rod in their hands and he's like, in 15 minutes, they're casting proficiently and catching fish. And the whole day changed for them. So, you know, we talked about the characteristics of that rod series and, um, it was all the things that we've talked about. You know, it was a full flex rod. It um, it had a ton of feel, yet it still had a lot of backbone to handle some of the bigger fish. You know, a softer tip to protect the tippet, but certainly not too soft. Um, you know, and everything right down to the color. And that's what sort of launched the... CK series, and I took all of that information, went to a good friend of mine that 
um, has collaborated on a lot of our blank designs and has a, sh- a blank shop up in Pennsylvania and said, okay, Mike, let's you know, work through this. And the first one that we were going to do was a six weight. And we had, I don't know, it, it, it was less than 20, but not much less than 20 iterations of that design. And finally, we just said, yeah, okay, this one isn't quite making it, but Chuck put a five-weight line on it. And he was like, oh, my God, Chris, this is the best five-weight I've ever cast. So, you know, we, we set the bar down at a five-weight now, and we started translating up from there. And the six came easily after that. The eight came easily after that. The seven-weight was a challenge and you know we were we're hitting a couple of material boundaries there and we had to reassess how we were approaching the design and with the seven weight i think we had 27 different design iterations and um you know build them up Chuck and I would go out and fish them and, you know, it's not quite right. We need to tweak it again, tweak it again. And finally, you know, I remember when I brought that 27th blank to him built up and, you know, we fished it and his first cast, he was like, my God, this is it. And this is perfect. And, you know, it, it is, it is the darling of that series. It's the rod that, everybody absolutely loves they love the six they love the seven i mean the eight and you know the five has the very small niche that it fits um but the seven is is the darling there's always one yeah there's always one in every series yeah and that's the perfect smallmouth ride right yeah yeah no i and as far as i'm concerned it it is a a great all around rod, you know, if we're not talking trout, you know, of course, you know, a lot of people use it for streamer rods for their trout fishing as well, but it's a great smallmouth rod, you know, large mouth. Um, I've got guides that use them regularly for redfish. Um, there's a, a bunch of guys down in the Virginia beach area that use them and, you know, just, have a blast with them on some of the big gator trout. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great rod. Yeah. And then I, I can't remember if, if Chuck's rods were the first ones you, you made, but I, I know, I guess stews were not too far behind it. If they were second. Stews were the first and stews design, um, the base design, I can't take any credit for whatsoever. Um, Stu worked with a now defunct Diamondback um, rod company. And there is a rod company by that name, but it's not the same rod company. Um, And Stu's rods are three-piece configurations. And that particular group of Stu's rods will remain three-piece. I know that turns people off sometimes, but honestly, I've not had any trouble traveling with them. That's usually the objection. Um, but Stu's rods have two 
hinge points, if you will. You know, it's a parabolic type taper. And they're specifically designed for Stu's style of casting and fighting fish. Um, and, you know, I, I remember the first time I saw Stu do this uh, as a demo for me, and it just blew my mind. So, you know, he'd talk about being up in the front of a boat out on the flats and, you know, you're sight fishing. And, you know, you'd see a fish at 50 feet, 60 feet. And, you know, he'll say that what led to all of his world records was being very accurate and very fast and not lining fish. Those are the three things that, that he would talk about. And then he'd talk about his fighting tactics. But, you know, fast, a fast, accurate presentation was sort of paramount. And, and he's got this fast cast technique that is just amazing to me. He'll, he'll strip off, you know, 60 feet of line. And he'll have it up there on the bow on the platform. And he'll take maybe 20 feet out of the end of the, the tip of the rod and just sort of let it hang loosely. And he's got the fly in his hand, in his left hand, and the fly rod in his right hand. When he sees his target, he'll do this little sort of easy roll and let the fly go. And he'll shoot back and cast forward and shoot all of that line with basically without a false cast and, you know, right on target. And so it takes a rod with, with some sort of special characteristics and certainly it had to be accurate. So, you know, it had to be spined properly. It had to have good dampening. Um, but those were, those were the characteristics that his rods needed to display as well as a lot of backbone. Cause one thing about Stu, you know, when, when you're fighting fish, you let them know who's boss from the very first second and you don't let up. And it's, it, you know, well, it's his results speak for themselves. He's, he's done very well with that. You know, he's told me when, we were prototyping a nine weight. He had 140 pound tarpon on the nine weight. He landed in 12 minutes. Yeah. And that's, wow. uh, you know, most people, they'll say, Oh my gosh, I fought that fish for 45 minutes. Yeah. Like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> on to the next fish. And, you know, and then you've also built series, you know, with Joe Mahler and Debbie Hansen. I did. I did. Joe Mahler. That was an interesting one. So Joe had come to Virginia to the fly fishing festival that Bo Beasley does. And I think he came with new canoe. I hadn't met Joe at that point. And Joe was doing some casting demonstrations um, from a, from a kayak. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, minimizing motion and keeping all the motion within the confines of the kayak so you're not, you know, slapping the water with the sides of the boat or risking flipping it over and all that. And, he, and you know Joe. I mean, he's a great showman. He's a great guy, but he's a great showman. He gets people's attention. 
and Chuck was sitting there watching it and and just really amazed at what Joe's technique, what Joe's casting technique is. And when Joe finished up the demo, Chuck ran out and grabbed him and shoved his seven weight, his CK seven weight, and said, I want you to do your next demo with this rod. <laughs> and, and Joe will say, you know, you, you, you don't say no to Chuck, <laughs> whether you know him or not. You just, you don't say no. Um, and so he took it and he's like, well, okay, uh, I guess I'll do my next demo with this rod. And Joe cast the rod in the demo. And it was kind of interesting, you know, the first time he, he made a couple of casts with it. He was like, my God, this is one of the best seven weights I've ever cast in my life. <laughs> and that's when Joe and I sort of got connected. He came over and talked to me afterwards and we talked about rods and we got to be pretty quick friends. And, you know, we came up with the idea of doing a two rod series for him um, that had a, a unique flat spot in the grip, which is sort of somewhat unique to Joe's style of casting. And, um, you know, it was the same sort of thing. He described what he wanted in the rod. We worked with the design, gave him a couple of uh, samples. Um, at this point, it was the third series that we had worked with, only the second full design. Um, actually, that's not true. It's not true. It, you know, it was the third full design. And, um, and we nailed that one pretty quickly. So he's got a five six and a seven eight, and that did really well. You know, Joe uses them in all of his lessons, and you know, basically sells them at his lessons. You know, people people were learning to cast with these rods, and they want one. So, so that did well. That led then to the Debbie Hansen. Um, Joe and Debbie were good friends down in the Fort Myers area. And Debbie is just phenomenal. Um, you know, she's a great guide, great personality, um, very, very um, much a big promoter of women in the sport. And so we started talking about doing a rod and we initially it was going to be a seven weight rod and a spinning rod because Debbie guides with both. And, um, we never quite got there with the spinning rod. Um, but the fly rod was just, um, it was designed specifically for her. Uh, and the colors that she wanted, and you know the wraps at was it, uh, eighteen and twenty four inches, I think. Um, you know, so you can do a quick measurement on your fish. Uh, and we marketed that one mainly towards the ladies in the sport, but you know, as of now, there's probably as many guys with that rod as there are gals. Yeah, interesting. And then I know you've got another series before we talk about fiberglass, because I do want to talk about fiberglass a little bit, the Kildare series. 
and that was actually that was actually the first rod series um and that was me just you know i i grew up fishing a four-way uh for trout and i just wanted a really nice comfortable four-way and i worked with again with my friend in pennsylvania and just said okay you know so here's where we want to get to this is what i'm looking for and i wanted a rod that um could kind of do it all you know had enough reserve power that you could really launch out and and into some wind if you needed to um but would also make a good nymphing rod and would also make a good dry fly rod and those things almost can't exist in the same space all those things together um the killed air really does seem to do that um it's a great dry fly rod it's a great nymphing rod and it's got enough reserve power to, to punch out you know 60 foot casts when you need it although you know i'm always preaching you generally don't need 60 foot casts um and certainly not the four weight but um that was the first series and you know i was thinking about my irish heritage about the soul of the irish um you know and and sort of all that feeling and emotion went into that rock design yeah very neat and then you also have two fiberglass rods we do, and that was a, that was an interesting happening. Also, it was one night. I think we were at a the Heartland fly fishing show up in Indiana, just north of Indianapolis. Um, the show that Joe Smith puts on every year to benefit Project Healing Waters, and we were in the hotel room one night, and it was Chuck and myself. And a fellow named Dirk Fishbat, who's been around the industry for a long time. And Dirk was, Dirk is just sort of a, I mean, he's a great fly fisherman, but he's a, a fly fishing historian as well. And he's one of those guys you can ask about almost any rod, and he can tell you it's, it's heritage, you know, back to the beginnings. And, and we were just, Get, Chuck and I were both really getting schooled in this um, education of the old masters and what it what made those rods so good. And and we were talking bamboo. And of course, there might have been a little bit of brown water involved in this conversation. And as it goes, um, you know, eventually. I don't know which one of us said it first, but I think it was on everybody's mind. It was like, you know, I wonder if we can take some of those old tapers that were just so precious and try to translate them from bamboo to fiberglass. And, you know, what would that be like? And we explored that for quite a while. And the first one that we thought about was one of Paul Young's uh, designs the midge which was a six foot eight or nine uh, four-way and I went back to 
my blank guy and said, okay, Mike, this is what we're trying to do. And you know, he had the tapers because he, he builds bamboo rods. And I said, you know what we're trying to accomplish? And I know it's not going to be exactly like, but, you know, a facsimile of. And, you know, Mike knocked it out of the park with that fiberglass design. And honestly, he's probably the best fiberglass designer in the country right now. And, uh, and so we left it with a nice sort of honey color blank that sort of makes you think of bamboo, um, you know, not flame darkened bamboo, but, you know, some of the other uh, lighter bamboo colors, um, very traditional wraps. And it, true to, to Paul Young's design, is a parabolic taper. And, you know, it was one of those where we said, probably never going to sell a lot of because it's sort of a niche thing. But this this gets back to, you know, benefits of being a small company. But we just said, yeah, but it's a fun project, so let's do it. <laughs> and and we did. And actually, it's become a pretty popular little fiberglass rod. It's a blast to fish with. And I was, I was never a short rod guy at all. It was always nine foot or nothing. And <laughs> this one really got me. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, what is it? Because, I mean, the people that, you know, are into fiberglass are really into fiberglass. What is it that you think that draws people to that older technology? In my opinion, and, and you know, there's, there's guys that certainly know much better than me, but in my opinion, one of the driving factors of sort of the fiberglass revolution, if you will, was what we talked about earlier, you know, where, how the industry had just gone to faster and faster and faster rods. You know, they were losing their feel. And there were the guys, the, the 40 and 50-year-olds like me, um, saying, oh my gosh, but what happened to the rods we grew up with? And they found that in fiberglass. And, and I think that's really, um, you know, there's a little bit of nostalgia there, but I think they were just looking for a feel in the rods that they couldn't find anywhere else at the time. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I mean, I guess I kind of think about, um, you know, it's like those old Winston LTs, right? Pretty radically different mm-hmm. from what Winston makes today. Yep. Um, yep. But, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Are there any um, rod designs that you feel like you want to add to the to the Riley Rodcrafter family of rods? Oh, we've got a few in the works. Um, actually, I'm doing... Uh, some prototype work now for some of my tarpon guides um, in a eight and a half foot twelve weight single piece, um, which has been kind of a fun project. Uh, not sure, you know. I know a lot of one piece rods are sort of making their way out on the market these days. Um, not sure where that's going to go, but. You know, I've, I've spent some time with the second prototype casting it now, and I think it's going to certainly meet its its 
uh, targets. I mean, it's it's a strong rod, but still has plenty of feel. Um, I'm getting more into some of the ten footers. I uh, did a, a series which we haven't launched yet, uh, and I sort of provisionally named it the Sea Tuck uh, after the Sea Tuck River in Alaska. Um, and it started with a 10 foot seven weight, which was sort of the ideal size rod for the big steelhead in the larger waters up there. Um, so we're, we're talking about taking that further. And then we've got a saltwater series coming out also, a four piece saltwater series that, um, that I'm pretty excited about, but I'm not going to talk too much about it. Fair enough. I don't want to jinx you, and uh, there, will, <laughs> there will be a trade show at some point. At some point, yeah, yeah. So, from a design perspective, you know, do you kind of you know CAD draw out the prototypes, and then it sounds like you've got a partner up in Pennsylvania that kind of builds the prototypes for you. Is that how does that design process kind of work until you get all the kinks out? Um, yeah, a lot of trial and error, uh, an awful lot of trial and error. You know, we'll talk about, we'll talk about what the taper needs to be, what, you know, what kind of material and where, because, you know, no blank is entirely, well, except for some of these fiberglass, but, but really no blank is entirely made up of a single material. Um, you know, so then we'll start, we'll, we'll look for a mandrel that, already exists in our library that is sort of close and then we'll just start wrapping some uh, some blanks um, using you know different materials different overlaps different layups um, and you know it, thankfully Mike has just a ton of experience there and usually knocks it out of the park pretty quickly but I think it's it's very intuitive, at least for him. I, I work with some other guys as well. You know, a guy that used to be uh, one of the leading designers at St. Croix, and he's no longer with St. Croix. And he's much more the engineer of, you know, we're going to work up the numbers and, and you know, we'll do load analysis and get there. Um and he does a great job with that as well. But, but in the Pennsylvania shop, it's a lot of trial and error and it's just gut experience. Yeah. And obviously you're out and you field test them. So, you know, once you, you know, you have that aha moment like you had with Chuck in the seven weight, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how and where your rods are manufactured. So we, wrap all of our rods. I have blanks that are done in higher volume uh, done in a shop out on the West Coast. In the less expensive rods, um, for instance, Joe's and Debbie's, um, we sent our design criteria overseas and had them prototyped overseas and and have the blanks done over there. I think we're about to pull that back. It was important at the time 
uh, certainly to Joe, and I know where he was coming from, uh, but it was important at the time to have a sub $300 rod. And there's no way you can do that by building the blank to knee lab. Right? Virtually impossible. So, um, so we went offshore with those blanks. Uh, but everything else, um, you know, the blanks are done either on the West Coast or they're done up in Pennsylvania. Um, and we use family businesses as much as possible. Um, and, you know, U.S. made absolutely as much as possible. There's a couple of things. You know, I can't get cork from the U.S., of course. <laughs> it's um, not in the Shenandoah Valley anywhere? Yeah, no. <laughs> That's a fertile valley, but no cork. <laughs> um, you know, I use, on some of our rods, I use a guy in Idaho that um, makes real seeds. You know, he'll turn the burl and he forges the nickel silver and etches them. And, you know, we've got uh, a small family business where we'll get rod tubes. And I've got a couple of ladies here. We call them WAM, Women's Auxiliary of Monticello, that actually sew rod socks for us. And, um, you know, all of the rods are then wrapped by me. Um, I have a guy up in Connecticut that's been building rods for 40-something years uh, that does an awful lot of, of work for me as well. And I'm starting to branch out, and we're reaching out to some of the Project Healing Waters guys that learned to build rods and are really good at it and love it but it's an expensive hobby. So, you know, I'll get them set up with the equipment, send them some rod kits, have them build rods and, you know, I'll pay them for the rods that they complete. Yeah. That's interesting. It makes me think of like the stories of how it used to be like in Dan Bailey's shop out in Montana, right? Where he would, yep. you know, hire um, all of these housewives to tie flies for him. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, Great dexterity, great attention to detail. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you're sitting at the hub of this, uh, you know, with all these spokes feeding you all the pieces. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And, and for us, it's always been very, very important to, you know, do as much local as we humanly can. Um, and then, you know, if I've got to go elsewhere in the country for, for, you know, materials or items or service than to do as much with small family owned business as, as we possibly. Yeah. Which is interesting because given the fact that, you know, it's you or someone that you can basically reach out and touch, uh, that's wrapping the rods. Um, I would imagine it's pretty easy for folks to customize their rods then. It, it's very easy. Um, it's absolutely very easy. And, you know, we don't, we don't do a good job of, of talking about that on our website. Um, you know, but I always, when I talk to people personally or at shows, you know, I, I encourage them, you know, if you want some sort of a customization, let me know. Um, 
you know, the, the midge, the mountain midge or her little four weight fiberglass, you know, I, I always have, I don't know, 30, 40 real seats on hand. And, you know, I'll give people the option when an order comes in, I'll email them and say, okay, so, you know, here are the different real seats we have. There's all these different fertile woods. There's, you know, there's the dark uh, nickel silver. There's the bright nickel silver. Um, you know, there's screw lock or there's slide bands. You know, what would you like for your real seat? And, you know, people generally are pretty amazed. They're like, wow, I can, I can make those choices? Well, yeah, I'm going to build it for you tomorrow. So <laughs> you can... <laughs> Yeah, and at that price point, because you know, you know, your rides are not inexpensive, but they're not thousand dollar or twelve hundred dollar sticks either. No, right. No. So, um, yeah, that is pretty amazing. What does that do in terms of lead time uh, from the time someone places an order? And I'm sure it changes seasonally, but um, you know, how long does it take? You know, from the time people give you uh, their credit card number until they get their ride. If if it's something that I'm going to customize. Um, you know, the answer is it depends. It depends on what sort of customization you want. You know, if you, if you want some, uh, initials or, you know, some picture on your ride, I'm going to go to my decal folks in Tennessee and, you know, that could take a week. Um, if you're just wanting a different color wrap and it's, it's colors that I have on hand, or a different real seat. Um, realistically, it's going to take a week. Um, I almost never have anything out unless somebody wants something that I just don't even have the blank for. And then I've got to go to Pennsylvania and say, okay, I, I need, you know, I need this one. So why don't you roll me half a dozen? And, and that'll add a couple of weeks to it. But, you know, quite honestly, for a fully customized rod, you know, worst case, three or four weeks, it's not bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. And, you know, it's interesting, too, listening to you talk about your supply chain. It's probably really helped you avoid some of the COVID issues that a lot of other manufacturers have had. Oh, it absolutely has. It absolutely has. But, you know, to be to be perfectly honest, this last year, was it was tough for us. Um my supply chain was in good shape. I could always get the materials when I needed it, but you know, we really had a slowdown this past year in, in 2019, we did more than three times the business. We did in 18, which 18 was three to four times the business we did in 17 by the end of the first quarter of 20, we were running about 350% of where we were the same point last, the prior year. And then the phone stopped ringing. And, you know, people, people were spending time outdoors because it's the one thing that they could do. But, you know, people were worried about the economy. They were worried about their jobs. You know, there were so many people that were unemployed. Um, there wasn't a lot of money flowing. Yeah. yeah. So you, we ended up last year 
probably back around 2018 levels. Yeah, it's interesting too listening to the to you talk about how you market your rods. You know, it's one thing to go fish, but it's another thing to go fish with a guide, right? So right. Uh, you had so many fewer opportunities between that and probably you know shows uh, and club meetings. Probably so many fewer opportunities to put your rods in people's hands. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So you know the the business that we did last year was largely um, you know just the repeats. And, and we've got, you know, we've got a great uh, loyal following of, of customers. Um, and that's, that, that's important to us. And, it, and it, it's gratifying when you hear people say, and I see it in the reviews sometimes, you know, that, that it's less like they're buying a rod from a rod company and more like they're buying a rod from their best friend. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what we strive for. I mean, we just, customers are everything. It's, it's the business. And, you know, customer service means an awful lot to me. And it's something that tends to be lacking sometimes these days. And, uh, you know, it's important that we treat everybody like we've known them for years and, you know, how can we help you and what can we do for you? Yeah. And so much of that to me kind of is that feeling you get when you kind of step back into that sporting tradition, you know, from the sixties and the seventies, right. About how it was. Right. And to me that that's what it feels like. And that's kind of what, you know, when we talk about, you know, what your rods feel like that to me is, is sort of all comes together. Right. Right. So, all good stuff, Chris. I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to chat with me this evening. Um, before I let you hop, why don't you let folks know where they can, um, you know, learn more about Riley Ridecrafters, follow you guys on social media, and um, all of your fishing adventures, and maybe a little bird hunting too. <laughs> oh, I wish there were more bird hunting these days. But yeah, we we're online. It's uh, com. And Facebook is Riley Rod Crafters. Instagram is Riley Rod Crafters. Um, all our contact information is on the website. Feel free to reach out. The guy that's going to answer it when you say, you know, contact us and you send an email, it's coming straight to me. Uh, and I'll be the guy that answers it. And if it's something that I can't answer, then I'll let you know. I'm going to pass it off to one of my expert guides to give you better guidance. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, please just feel free. Seek out one of our guides. Um, spend some time on the water with with you know we deal with some of the best guides out there right now. And Joe Mahler, Lord knows, probably one of the best casting instructors I've ever seen. And if you can get on his calendar, I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Chris, it's been great spending time with you this evening. Thank you so much and have a great evening. Thanks, Marvin. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all the details for Blaine Chocolate's upcoming classes. Tight lines, everybody.